Lord, for that truth. I thank you that, um, that, when, you were, that when, when you were looking down at your son on the cross, who was saying, why have you forsaken me, O Father? He looked to you and said, it is finished. Te telestai, paid in full, nothing else required. We gather as your people of grace to see and seek and share your grace with other people. So Lord, what we are not yet, please make us. What we cannot see, please show us. What we do not know, please teach us. What we lack, give us today as we continue to worship you in the word. For the fame and the glory of your name, we pray these things and all God's people said. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Sorry to is this on? Try to gather myself after that song. It's fitting to read this. Uh, Romans 8, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 28 to 39. What a powerful promise. Thank you, Tina. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. Find Romans. You may have noticed that that is not the passage that we are talking about today. You might have noticed that because our daily readings uh, have the, usually have the passage that we're teaching on, and I will be teaching in, in Romans chapter 11. So we'll get to why I had Tina read a different passage here in a few minutes. But before we do, find your insert in your bulletin and look at the first talking points question. So we're a conversational church. We want to be participatory. I'm getting worse and worse or better and better. I don't know what you're saying that word. But if you look at the first talking points question, it says, what types of things result from broken promises or come about from broken promises is the best, it's probably a better way for me to have said that. The, the, what, I'm, what I'm looking for responses to is the question of this. When someone breaks a promise to you, what kinds of things happen for, as a result of that? So I'm asking. Broken trust. What? Same thing. Broken trust from both in stereo. What else? Anger. Sadness. 
resentment. Man, powerful words. True words, too. Hatred. Wow. Yeah, if we can't say amen, we ought to say ouch, right? I mean, from the, from the, ba- from the mouths of babes. Right? What else? Disappointment, retribution, hopelessness. So, so why might we struggle to, when somebody says, hey, take my word for it? Whether that person be the person that you're living under the same roof with or whether that person be the person who's trying to sell you a car, how, like, like, why might we struggle with that? Why do we struggle when people say, just take my word for it? Because there's sinners like us who don't keep their word and we've been disappointed before. I, she's saying that much nicer, but we've been betrayed. We've been lied to before. Right? Like, let's just call it what it is. Now, I mean, not everything is an overt lie, but there might be, like, you know, lies of omission and lies of commission. But, guys, now think about this. How might that situation cause us to go, so when God says, take my word for it, how might our view of, our, like, how we have experienced life with other people in that regard, take my word for it, how might that affect how we view God when he says, hey guys, just take my word for it. You can see, like, we all have filters through which we filter life. And one of those things is even how we filter um, or how we interact with God. We've talked about that a lot here at Cross Train. But guys, I, mean, I just, just, just even in the context of this idea of promises kept... Think about how the fact that our reality of, that that none of us keep promises perfectly, none of us have had every promise made to us kept perfectly, how does that impact how we might see even a God that we know is perfect and his real desire and willingness to keep his promises towards us perfectly? Because the reason I had Tina read Romans 8 was because Romans 8, and it's very connected to what we're going to talk about in Romans 11, but it is an amazing promise of God. I mean, every, every verse that she read, Romans 8, 28 through 39, you're just like, man, promise, power, promise, power, over and over. And so you're like, man, but, but if we don't actually believe those promises and that we don't actually believe that he'll keep those promises, then what's the point of the promise? Right? And, and that's why I wanted us to start there. Because Romans 8 and, and what Tina just read and what Sean led us into in that last song, because we, we, we look and we go, okay, as we're sitting here and we're, and we're sensing the spirit in the room and, and we're going, yeah, absolutely, I claim that. But then struggles come and, and situations happen and, and turmoil happens. And, and all of a sudden, though, our, our confidence in the promises of God get weaker and weaker. And so we start asking the question of, okay, Romans 8, thank you, God, for that great promise, but what about the struggles in the world? What about the turmoil in the world? What about everything I see going on? What, what about what's going, what about, like, like we see all these Old Testament promises, are they, are they, have they really been fulfilled? Were, were those promises that you made to Abraham and David, even, were those just, like, did you just forget about those? Because because what we see in the world going, like going on in the world right now is I don't see this kingdom that you were talking about happening in our, in our world. So then you go, okay, so if the Old Testament promises maybe have gotten like thrown away by God, what's to keep him from throwing away the New Testament promises? That's the, that's the question Paul is pressing us into today. So, so today's message is going to be about has God's, have God's promises failed? 
But before we jump into Romans 11, I, guys, Romans, I, I've talked about this quite a bit since we've kind of gotten back into Romans last month. Romans 9 through 11 are, are the, are, especially 9 and 11, are the two chapters of Romans that kept me away from teaching Romans for 12 years. Because there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot of unknowing there. There's a lot of con- um, um, potential conflict in, in how people view things. Romans 9 and 11 in particular are why even pastors that do preach through Romans often skip Romans 9 and 11 or, or just bounce over it quickly because they don't either, one, know how to deal with it, or two, they just don't want to get into the possible conflict that can result. But here's what's interesting. I don't really see a lot of conflict in Romans 9 or 11, if we're willing to do a couple of things. One, Romans 9 in particular, but also in 11, if we just embrace this idea that we cannot possibly know everything there is to know about God. If, if we just get over this idea that we're going to understand every single part of Scripture in order for it to actually be true, if we can get past that, that's a huge part of it. But, but, but another huge piece of it is, if we would just see God's story from beginning to end under the same, in the same filter... There's this word that, I'm, that I teach in, in my Bible classes. It's called a hermeneutic. It's not a biblical word. It's not even just for the Bible. A hermeneutic is just the lens through which you filter what you're experiencing and then make decisions about it. So, it's, it's like, so a lens, a lens is a good word to use because it's a picture of like, like going to the optometrist and they put those different lenses in front of you so to see how you see. We all have lenses now, in how we come to scripture, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but we all have lenses in all of life. How you view what you see on the news, how you view what's going on in your marriage, how you view what's going on in the world. Guys, we all have lenses. Where do those lenses come from? I'm at experiences. Good. What else? What we're taught, right? Like if we, sit, if we sit under teaching that is a certain way, we will tend to develop the lenses that are the, that are the same as the teacher. Jesus said that, that a student will not be above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he will be, New Testament survey students, he will be like his teacher. Where is that? Luke 6. See, if you're in the New Testament survey class, you'd know that. So, um, but we all have these filters for the world. Now, the, now what's interesting about the biblical hermeneutic, the biblical filter, is even as I was reading and preparing for this particular chapter, chapter 11, guys that I very much respect, guys meaning biblical scholars, commentators, what we will tend to do is change our filter to fit our experience, the teaching that we've kind of decided is true. Like, so what we're going to do is when we get to a passage in Scripture that doesn't seem to fit our, like, our view, our hermeneutic, we then change the scripture, instead of changing, instead of going, wait a second, maybe what I think about this isn't completely right. We go, no, somehow I, I, have, to wor- I, have, to, I have to now read into this passage what I want it to say. That's called, that's called eisegesis, and it's really bad. So all that to say, without, just, without use, even using the big words, you may sit here today and go, you know what, I, ha- I have no idea like, what my view on the church, it's called ecclesiology, is, or what my view on end times, or, or the kingdom coming, eschatology is. Or you may be sitting here going, I have real passions about both of those things, about what the church is and isn't, and about the end times, and, and how that's going to play out. My, I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't think about those things in this particular message. Here's what I'm here to, a- to, to ask us all to do. To go, is how I'm approaching Scripture consistent from beginning to end? 
In other words, am I changing my filter to try to make sense of what I've already decided is true? Now, Paul's going to address it specifically in, in today's passage about this idea of ecclesiology, or who are the people of God, and how does Israel and the church match together? And what's interesting is, is people that were saying that, so, so, here's, so here, just let me just back up and, and, and put it this way. If the problem of Romans 1 through 3, there is a God, he's in it, we've rejected him because we want to be self-worshippers, he, he has rightly got to judge that, and all of us are under that judgment, Romans 3. If, if that is for all people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if that is for all people, and the promises of Romans 5 through 8... Um, Sean read, or um, somebody read part of it, I think maybe it was Sean or, or, or Kylie, I don't know which during our prayer time, that we are now justified by faith, Romans 5, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If, if those promises of Romans 5 through 8 are for all people, then we don't want to get to Romans 9 through 11 and go, those promises are only for a certain part of those people. And what, what, there are re really solid Bible teachers that will say things like, well, Romans 9 through 11 is just an aside that Paul was writing specifically to the Jews. And it doesn't fit for anything else. But then the, here's the, the ironic part. They turn to Romans 12, and they jump back into this is for everybody again. So Romans 1 through 11, Romans chapter 1 through 8 is for everybody. Somehow Romans 9 through, through 11 is this change in hermeneutic. It's a change in lens. Now we're just talking about Jewish people and how they fit. And then all of a sudden we get back to Romans 12 and we go, no, now it's for everybody again. I, again, some of these men are men that would blow me out of the water theologically. I have massive respect for them. I would just choose to filter Scripture through, a, as, as best I can, a consistent lens. Even as I leave room for me to go, my lens could be completely broken. My lens could be wrong. So all, that, all of that is an intro into kind of what we're jumping into today. So today what we're talking about is, are the, in, this, in this next section of, of Romans where we're talking about the righteousness of God, we're talking about magnified righteousness through one story. It's one story from beginning to end. And that terminology should not, I mean, if you, you've heard that a ton here at this church over the last few years. That God is telling one unchanging story that started in Genesis chapter 1 in a garden, and it will get to a garden in Revelation 21 and 22 again. And that whole story is very seamless, even as it unfolds in different ways throughout human history. So what we're going to look at is, has God's story failed? And Paul's going to tell us, how, like, how do we know if it's failed? Well, he's going to show us there's a witness to a remnant that, that tells us it has not failed, that it's built on a foundation that is firm, so it has not failed, and that the whole idea behind it is that it is revealed in the glory that is the gospel. And that's why it has not failed either, because the gospel has not failed. We're not going to, just because just I know my introduction was long, just rest assured, we are not going to cover all 32 verses today. Typically, we will just go through verse by verse. Um, I will, we will do a little bit of that. We'll do a little bit of skipping and summarizing. Um, you've read it this morning on your own as part of your daily reading. You have the Holy Spirit. The parts that maybe you, that I skipped, um, the Holy Spirit can reveal to you. But let's jump in to our first point that Paul's going to answer the question. So have the promises of God failed? And, and let's look at them as consistently as we can through this hermeneutic. So he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, 
has God rejected his people? He's saying the Jewish people. He's going to make three arguments for why they have it. And here they are really quick. He says, by no means has he rejected the Jewish people. His first argument is, because I'm a Jewish person and I'm saved. He's like, of course, that's his He's like, I myself am an Israelite. So one, he's going, of course God hasn't rejected the Jewish people. Because here's an example of a Jewish person who's saved right here in front of you. Me, Paul. He's saying Paul. Uh, and then he goes, I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So now he's going to make this, this idea of, um, of the, the second argument would be like this inclusion in this promise of God. But look at where he goes with the promise. He's talking about, I am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So remember back in Romans 9, this whole thing about um, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. He's making this argument that he's, he made it. Go back to Romans 9, verse 6. Look at Romans 9, verse 6. He's, he's kind of answered. He uses the same question. Paul uses the same question to approach a different argument. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. But it's the same, same question he's going to ask in Romans 11 about. So how does all this story work among all of God's people? So in verse 6 of Romans 9, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember the question we're asking? Has the word of God failed? Has the story of God failed? Has the promise of God failed? He's saying it's not as if it's failed. But then look at his argument. For not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. He's saying not everybody who is, of ethnic Jew, is, is an ethnic Jew is at, was actually ever God's people. He's saying, so, and, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are offspring, um, not all are uh, the children of Abraham because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right? That's that, and we looked at this. I, obviously, I preached through this a couple of times. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is, now guys, get this, understand this. See, if you're sitting here today and you are saved, this is a promise for you. It is the children of the promise who are the people of God. He's saying it isn't about being Jewish. Or, now get this, Paul was distinctly pro-Jew. And we should be too as Christians. We should support and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is a command. We, we abs- I'm not say, I, I am not turning into somebody who's saying, like, like we don't want to support Jew- the Jewish nation. What we, do, what we don't want to do is, consistent hermeneutic is go, it's about the nation of Israel. It's, a, it's not. It's about the people of God. And the people of God, according to Paul, are, are, have always been the people of the promise. So where's the third argument? So the first argument was, um, I'm a Jew and I'm saved. The second was, he's been telling this story forever through Abraham um, and, and so on. And then look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people from whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. You're going to read about Elijah ne- um, tomorrow in... Um, in your daily reading. It's in 1 Kings 19, and it's the scene where Elijah calls down fire on Mount, Mount Carmel. He was a prophet of God during a very dark time in the, in the kingdom of God at that point. And, um, and, then, and then a queen, Queen Jezebel, says, I'm going to kill you. So he runs for his life. He hides out in the wilderness. And, and, God, and he's like, and, and he, at, the, at the very end of this whole thing, he says, this great story. It will minister to your soul tomorrow, I promise you. Don't go, 1 Kings, I'm not reading it. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a rich story. But at the end of that, he goes, it is enough now, Lord, take my life. He is so discouraged. He's like, just kill me. I am suicidal. And guys, I've been there as a believer. Maybe some of you have been there. 
Right? Like, like it is, there, is a, there is a dark night of the soul, even for the people of God. And, and yet, what does God say to Elijah? Well, Paul says, so what was the divine answer? What was God's reply? You're not alone, Elijah. Get over it. I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So, and then he says this. So too, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is, gra- but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. It's no longer being a legalistic keeping Jewish person. It's only ever been about God's pursuing grace. He says, otherwise, it's no longer grace. We are saved by grace, and this not of yourselves, Paul says in Ephesians 2. It is a gift of God that no one would boast. He's saying we're just his workmanship. Prepared bef- like to do good works that God prepared beforehand. He said the Jews are the same way. The whole point is there's always been a remnant of God's people. And then he's going to take these next few verses, verses 7 through 10, and he's going to, here's the cool part, he's going to pick passages out of the Old Testament. Out of Psalm 69, out of Isaiah 29, but not just coincidentally. He's picking passages that are very messianic. Messianic means pointing to Jesus coming. So he's going he's gonna to pull from 900 B.C. and from 700 B.C. And he's, gonna, he's not going to quote the messianic part of the passage. But what he's saying is these promises that, that the Jewish people have all clung to forever have only ever pointed to Jesus. Right? And so which ultimately was their whole point of existence. And then, and then like the, the, probably the, the top part of that is he gets to the very end of Psalm 69, at the very last, in verse 10, and he's quoting Psalm 69, and he quotes a part of the passage where he's talking about how they're going to give me sour wine. Well, who, who did that happen to? Jesus. Remember on the cross? Matthew 27, John 19. Right before he says it is finished, they offer him sour wine. This is all Paul's way of going, guys, all of this, has, the story has always ever just been to point to Christ. That's, that's what he's trying to convey. So now, turn to your second talking points question. This is the last one. We're, not, I'm not gonna, I'm just, we're just going to simmer in for a little bit. But uh, look at the second talking points question. I do want to get some feedback here. It says, let's get real. Have you had seasons of giving up on God? Thank you. Yeah. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Because there are people that are not among us today that have been among us. For, and I'm talking about recent or past. I mean, because you, we all have friends. We all have family that have walked away. Right? Because, and, and a huge part of that is what we want to try to find out is why are they angry at God? What's going on? What, and, and my guess is, for most people, it's because they believe that God promised them something he didn't deliver on. Right? And, and, we wanna, and we don't want to judge them for that. We want to step into that space and go, okay, so let's talk about that. Like, let, let's talk about a God that does not forsake his promises, and then let's talk about what he's actually promised us. Okay, he says, maybe you, say, maybe you think that your walk has just gotten too hard, life is too busy, the church is too messy. I think we've all been there um, if you follow Jesus for any length of time. So here's the question. I want to leave us there. I want to say, how did we get out? So help, how do you get out of those times? Help one another. I'm asking. Be transparent about it. 
Yeah, guys, we, like, as, guys, if people who are, and I keep, I always forget the word, what's it called, de, de, deconstructing, if they're walking, that's the fancy new lingo for walking away from your faith. Guys, if there are people in this room, or some of us, some that are, that are bouncing in and out of this room regularly, if they are deconstructing, they're kind of little by little being led away or, or just walking away from Christ, the church, guys, they need to feel like this is the place where they could come and go, but here's why. Here's my struggle. Here's what I'm struggling to believe. The, the thing, the, a, a huge part of why people deconstruct all the way to leaving is because they felt like the last place they could go and be transparent is their church, and that has to die. Why else? Why, or what else can we do to help? Patient prayer. Why patient prayer? Good. His perfect time, not ours. What else? <coughs> Discuss what God actually promised. Right? Like, like start, start pointing back to the truth of Scripture. The truth of God's Word. Good. What else? Mm, I thought, yeah, humility. So I heard most say humility. Like that, that, that ability to get to that place of going, like, I don't deserve, and yet he did. Good. Um, Otter, you were going to say something. Uh, so uh, the last I want to uh, just kind of uh, said had a lot of great stuff there, but the, I want to like get around people who are going to remind you of of what God actually said about your life, right? Like like, like that's a, uh, about the promises that He actually fulfilled. Guys, we have we have, we have part of what we have to, as far as promises and unfulfilled promises go. God always has. It goes back to what's patient prayer. What Scott said. It God always has the long game, and our pa- and our patience, our view is is so small. It's an hour, it's a day, it's a week. You know, when we're, when we're dealing with a couple whose marriage has been in turmoil because of years and years of neglect, they don't, they're like, if I can't see improvement in the next month, we're done. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, you got to be in the long game because God is in the long game, right? So, um, just as an example. I, one of the things I wrote down real quick, and we, we got to move along, is, because we have to, like, if, if you're at that place of going, like, I'm about ready to give up, start serving other people. Guys, get, get involved in just encouraging them, like encouraging other people even. Guys, we tend to turn inward. The gospel uh, at work in your life is meant to turn you upward and outward. And the more we sit at home and, to, and just focus on just us or even just our marriage or even just our family, the, the, guys, I'm telling you, you, you just get pushed further and further into your cave. That's just the reality of it. So you got to help. you got to serve other people. And, and that leads us to our second point. So it's built on this firm foundation where God has been telling the story. So, so has God's story failed? No, because he's always kept a remnant, and we are it now, right? And then he says, and it's, but, but also it's been built on this firm foundation. So we're just going to look at a few verses here. So pick it up in verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that, that they might fall? They being the Jewish na- people, by no means. Rather, 
Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Through their rejection, through their legalism, salvation has come through the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. If, they trespass, if their trespass means riches for the world, means the gospel went to everybody, in their, in their, in, and if their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full, will their full inclusion, or actually um, most, most translations, that word there actually just means, will their fullness, will their completion also bring? Guys, he's saying, the point Paul's going to make in this next section is, the foundation that they were built on was to help them and us see that we can't keep we can't keep God's promises. He is the promise keeper. It's their rejection, their rebellion, it's our rejection, our rebellion that presses us to grace. What Mo just said, it's that supplicate, it's that ability to go, I don't deserve and I can't even do what he's already done. That's the foundation that, we're, that we live on. Their rejection, their legalism, their rebellion, their rule, their long keeping magnified the grace of God. That's the point he's trying to make. And he's going to make that point, and he's been making this point throughout Romans of saying it magnifies the grace of God by, through the promise that was made in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, through the seed of man, we're going to crush the serpent's head. That seed promise goes to Abraham, and Abraham in Genesis 12 through 17. That seed carries on through Isaac, Isaac through Jacob, Jacob through Judah, Judah on to David eventually, David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, on to Jesus. Guys, turn, keep your finger, we're coming right back here because we got to move, but keep your finger here and go to Matthew chapter 1. Go to the very beginning of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. There is a reason the New Testament starts this way. And it's the same reason Paul has been pressing Abraham so hard. He doesn't talk about Moses a lot, except to point out Moses as being the lawgiver who, who points to the law that tells us our need for Jesus. He pulls, every time he's talking about the good news, he's pulling Abraham forward. Because, and, and look at how Matthew, the writer of, of the first go, of the go, gospel that begins our New Testament, look at what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Moses. No. Moses isn't even listed, by the way, guys, because he's not in the genealogy of Jesus. He says, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Guys, this is why. We can believe in the promises that they're kept. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. It's why Matthew starts here. He's saying the gospel story, the, good, the new covenant has always been this idea of a seed promise from the beginning. So now go back to Romans 11. And, and, we, say, and we say, okay, that, that's wonderful. But, but what does that look like? I, I wanna get, so I want to back it out of the theoretical. And I want to point it to, I was trying to think of a passage that, um, that, that might help us like, better understand um, this, because he's going to go on and talk about like, the dough and the lump and the branch and the, and the tree and how the branches are broken off. And he's trying to use analogies of saying, like, this whole thing is in parts, but it's all part of one big story. And that all sounds wonderful, but I want to point to something that might push a, little bu a few buttons here, because this is a, pa a verse or a passage that, that many of us love um, and is often confrontational. So turn to 
uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. So you're going to go to the left of where we are in Romans. You're going to go past um, all the minor prophets. Ezekiel is one of the last. But if you get to like Jeremiah, you've gone too far back up. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. I want to take the time to do this. Because, guys, like we pray. Like we, we've prayed about. I mean, like it was even, it was even prayed. Not, nobody quoted Ezekiel 37 today, but they prayed it. They prayed a part of this. Now here's, here's the question. Who is Ezekiel 37 for? Because depending on your hermeneutic, back to that word, depending on your lens, there are people that would say Ezekiel 37 is only for the nation of Israel. And, and it, we cannot apply it or claim it as New Testament believers. There are others who would take the other extreme and go, you know what, this has always been a, problem, a promise for the church because the church has replaced Israel. And what they mean by that, it's called replacement theology, what, what they mean by that is God has discarded the Jewish people altogether because they messed it up so bad, the new covenants started a new covenant. And that's called the church. What, what, our, what my hermeneutic is, what, and I will say our because the elders share this, is we look and we go, no, it's both and. The promise of God in Ezekiel is for God's people. In the Old Testament, God's people were the nation of Israel, the Jews. In the New Testament, God's people are what are called the church. It's just how you, def- it's how you describe them, but how you define them is people that have the Holy Spirit. Now look at, and I, and I get that the Holy Spirit functioned differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but, but look at this scene. And we're going to read through it quickly. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. So this is Ezekiel. He's, he's prophesying in a very, dark, a very dark time in God's people's history. In the nation of Israel's history, things were not well. And they did not get better. Uh, ever. The, the temple gets rebuilt as a, as a shell of its former self. It never gets filled with the Holy Spirit until Jesus walks into it. 500 and something years later. Now look at what he says. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into the spirit, out in the Spirit of the Lord, so there's the Holy Spirit, and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of dry bones. Now some of you are like, oh, I've heard this one before. The dry bones, the valley of dry bones. Right? This is saying God's people are spiritually dead. And he's saying, And he led me around among them, and behold, there was a very many, there were very many on the surface of the valley. So there were a lot of dry bones. And behold, they were very dead. They were very dry. So there, there's no spirit in them at all. Guys, we could make a little note here and say this could be very much the spiritual condition of the church today in a lot of places. And we desire and hunger and pray for and have prayed for even today that the Spirit's anointing would be upon us and upon this church and upon his church everywhere because apart from that, we are nothing. Like, like we're, not, we're, doing, we're, we're doing nothing apart from the role of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these dead people r- live? And he says, Oh, and, and Ezekiel's like, I don't know, Lord, you know. Then he says, prophesy over the bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, is what Paul told us in Romans 10, 17. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath. That word breath there is the the Hebrew word ruha. What What does the Hebrew word ruha mean? Spirit. It's wind. 
It's the Holy Spirit. He's saying, so I will cause the Spirit to enter into them. I will lay sinews on them. And, and, and he goes on to talk. So I'm gonna, I'm, in the interest of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. In verse 8, he says, I looked and behold, there were sinews on them. And the, so, so they've come together. They are now like, they're not like full, like they're not just bones anymore. They're skin and bones, but they're still dead. There was no breath. There was no ruha in them. Then he said to them, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the Spirit, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, Come from the, Sean prayed this, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they, and they lived and stood on their feet. And he said, Son of Man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now we go, okay, so there's Israel. The question is, the question we have to ask is, Who is Israel? Well, Paul told us the answer to that. Not all ethnic Jews are Israel. Who's Israel? The ones who believe in the promise. That's it. So he's like, okay, so keep going. He says, the bones are, um, and uh, I'm going to go down to verse 12. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open up their graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. Guys, what is that describing? The resurrection. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then he said, um, and when I open the graves, I will raise you from the graves, O my people. Now get this, verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So it's, it's a beautiful picture of Pentecost that Mo read for us. And I didn't know they were gonna, that he was going to read that or that Sean was going to pray that. It's the Holy Spirit. And I will, place in your, I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Guys, here's the point. This passage is a passage that we as New Testament believers have cl claimed because we see Pentecost, we see the resurrection, we see New Testament promises in there. Can we claim them? Not if we have a hermeneutic that says the promises of the Old Testament are for the Jews and so he will fulfill them only for the Jews. Then we need to take Ezekiel 37 and say we cannot apply that to us. But in order to do that, we had to change our lens through which we saw not just Romans chapter 11, but all of the book of Romans. Because all of the book of Romans is talking about all people. All of God's people and all people that will reject God. So the question becomes not like what, pro it's who are the promises for? They're for all. Paul's been pounding this home. Therefore, all who believe. If Romans 1 through 9 through 8 are for all people who will believe, then Romans 9, 10, and 11 are for all people who believe, and Romans 12 through 16 are for all people who believe we shall live this way. That's the point Paul has been making to us throughout the book of Romans. Look at your last talking points. And we are going to land this plane very soon. A warning before we go on. Praying a rote prayer, meaning the sinner's prayer. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand. Repeat after me. That is found nowhere in Scripture. I'm not discounting the fact that God has saved millions of people that way. God can do anything. I'm just saying, if there are also massive amounts of people, that that's their testimony. I, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle... I've never lived one moment after that for Jesus. But I'm good. Because I pray to pray. It's, it's what we talk about. Being in church does not make you a Christian. Just like being in a garage does not make you a car. 
right? Just like being a Jew doesn't make you God's chosen. It is in the confessing that Jesus is Lord that we show that we believe in our heart. But his lordship, his, your confession of his lordship, is not demonstrated by the confession of your lips as much as it is by the evidence of your life. So if you are now, guys, we're just gonna, I'm not asking for feedback here, but I do want you to think about this. If you were on trial for being a Christian, if they were rounding up Christians in our country, and that day could come, probably not in our lifetime, but maybe the, the pace of cultural change is fast. And it gets faster as the, as, the, as the wave gets bigger. If they were rounding up Christians based on your social media feed, based on, what you, based on things in your home, based on would there be enough evidence to convict you? In other words, is your life, like if, if they ask the people at the coffee shop you frequent, hey, who are the Christians that come into this coffee shop? If they ask the people at the school you go to, hey, who are the Christians on this campus? Would, would they quickly be able to go, this one, this one, this one? They should. I wrote down a few things. Just think about this. Let this linger. Have you been baptized? He tells us to be. We'd love to have baptisms on anniversary Sunday next Sunday. Let me know. It's not a suggestion from Jesus. It's a command. Have you been baptized? Do you read and respond to God's word? Like RJ talked about. Do you have the fruits of the Spirit evident in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those evidenced in your life? Are you in discipleship relationships? Are you connected to and serving a local church? Are you connected to and serving a local church? Not a suggestion in the Bible. It's a command for a believer. So here's, and guys, I say this as, as lovingly as, I'm saying it out of love. Because, because as a pastor, as an elder, I am held, I, I, will, I will stand before the Lord and give an account for the people he has placed under our charge. And that terrifies me and brings me great joy all in the same moment. But guys, if you can't readily say yes to some of those things that I listed, yes, I've been baptized, yes, I, I do have a hunger for God's word, not perfectly, None of us are perfect. But passionately, if you can't passionately say, yes, that describes me, I would humbly and as lovingly as I can ask you, what, ev- like, what is your barometer for measuring that you're a Christian? Like, what, 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 what scale are you using? To say, to say, yeah, but, but to say that I'm not, you're, uh, Jan, you're not, right? But th- and that's okay, you're not good enough. But guys, that's not a scale to use. I'm saying, if you're saying, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I've punched my ticket, but none, there's no evidence in your life of that, or very little, then what are you using for that assurance? Don't, I'm not asking for input. Just let, it sing, just let it simmer. If we have questions, come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to a leader. Right, don't leave here today feeling like, oh no, I'm a horrible person. Help, let us help you. That's what we want. But I am compelled to say we need to wake up as Christians and stop just saying we're Christians. And that leads us to our last point. Why do we need to do that? Because we need to be it, because God's story is revealed in the glory in his grace towards us. And if we're not out there telling that story, then his grace is, or his glory is diminished. You are a glory story if you're saved. So go back to Romans. 
And look at, look at verse 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Now, some people read that, and I'm just going to say this quickly. Some people read that partial as a period of time. In, in, our, in our hermeneutic of the, of the book of Romans, Paul, is when he's talking about partial, he's never talking about time. He's always talking about portion. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. The, the partial hardening is some people are hardened, some people are not. Not a period, but what, what, a, what a dispensationalist would say, and if you don't know what that word means, don't worry about it. What they would say is the partial hardening is the period of time we're in. But we've just flipped our hermeneutic and said, okay, now we've got to wait for the church time to be done, and then somehow all of Israel is going to be saved. Is all, what does all mean? Well, we know, here's one thing we know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean everyone. Because everyone is universalism, and universalism is a heresy. Not every, unless the all in Romans 1, and the all in Romans 3, and the all in Romans 5, and the all in Romans 8 is every human being that's ever lived, then the all in Romans 11 cannot be every Jewish person who's ethnically Jewish. Because that would be universalism from a Jewish for the Jews, and that would diminish the grace of God. The point, guys, get this, and we're going to finish up with this. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. The point that, that Paul has been arguing for all of Romans 9 through 11 is, is he, he's, he's, he has been, actually from, from Romans 8, the passage that Tina read, through what we just finished today in Romans 11, the, here's, what, here's what he's been laying out for us. Romans 8, so you can turn there if you want. Romans 8, and we're going to finish with this, 28 through 30. And we know that those who, for those who love God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So he's saying, if you are his, if you are one of the people of God, God works all things together for good. How do we know that? Because those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he conformed to the image of his, sorry, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Guys, God's end game for your life is to look like Jesus Christ, because that's how you bring him glory. It says so right there in Romans 8, 29. For the, and he does that by going, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. He made right with him. Those he justified, he glorified. We've hit that passage a bunch of times. But get this, it's, a, it's the same idea. This is not a Paul thing. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. And then I'm going to pray. He says, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, you were not a chosen people, but now you are the people of God. He's talking to us as he's also talking to the, the Jews that were living in his age that have come to faith in Christ. And he's saying, you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But there's a, so that. You, now, are, are here today as a Christian, if you are a Christian, for a so that. And the so that that Peter tells us, the so that that Paul's been telling us and that he's going to tell us starting in Romans 12 in a couple weeks, the so that is that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So how are you living the so that? In light of the truth that his promises in your life that really matter have never failed. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for um, I do thank you for that truth. I thank you for the truth that you have been telling one story 
And it's an interwoven series of promises of this, of this continually unfolding of your pursuing grace. It started in a garden when Adam and Eve rebelled and, and, and you called out to them, where are you? And they said, we are naked. So we're ashamed. And you graciously pursued them and said, who told you you were naked? Who did that to you? And the rest of the story has been about how you have been undoing what the enemy has been trying to steal. And you've been doing it in this intricate way that, that, that shows you to be the one in control of all things. The one who pursues your people with passion and relentless love. Lord, I do pray that, that we would be a people that, that would pursue you back that has been prayed even here this morning, that we would be a people that would, that would know what it means to press into the promises of God. That we are not worthy, but that you saved us anyway. And you have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. That you have put your spirit inside us. That someday you will come again to make all things new. And all of your people throughout all of human history who have come to believe in the promise that you're a saving God, will be together forever. That's what the promise we have to look forward to. Encourage us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.